Thank you for being here on this Monday night in the service. And I want to thank you uh, for all your kindness. And thank you. I've enjoyed spending some time with the preacher and his wife and the boys today. And uh, we just uh, enjoyed their fellowship. And then many of you get to speak to you a little bit uh, during the day or during the service, before and after. And I'm thankful for that. I appreciate the fellowship of God's people. Amen. Now, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 3, and there are 13 verses, and we'll just read them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I mentioned to you earlier in the week that every chapter ends with a reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seemed that Paul wanted these young Christians to be thinking about Jesus coming back. And I would say to you, Paul doesn't just want young Christians to think about that. He wants all of us to be thinking about that, that the Lord is coming back, that we would be looking for Him. Now, the Bible said in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse number 1, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning the faith, or your faith. But no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end... He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. That's, that's a mouthful right there. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. Thank you for loving us. I thank you, Lord, we can be assembled together tonight with the saints of God. I'm glad for the fellowship, for the songs of Zion for the good Holy Spirit of God that ministered to us. And Lord, I pray now for the preaching of the Word of God. I pray again, as I pray always, Lord, that you'll be glorified. Because I know that if you get glory, we'll get help. And Lord, I need some help tonight. Your people need help. We're living in dangerous times, difficult times. Lord, even in sometimes, some ways, frightening times, when we think about things that are going on in this world. But I'm glad we can have confidence in Thee. I'm glad what time I'm afraid I will trust in Thee, O Lord. I'm glad, Lord, that You comfort us in all of our tribulation, all of our trial. I pray now You help us in the preaching of the Word of God. 
And Lord, not just in the preaching, but in the living tonight. Help us to live what we hear. And I'll, I'll praise you for it. We'll thank you for it. We love you tonight. And we'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. I want to talk to you a little while tonight from this passage. I've been using a little A word every night. Uh, kind of to hang our thoughts on, alliteration we call it. And uh, I've been dealing with some things we talked Sunday morning about uh, acting or about being artificial. And then we talked a little bit last night about being angry. And really tonight is sort of a continuation. Paul is going to continue his thought really in chapter 3. But I'm going to call it tonight, I'd like to call it two things. Uh, in fact, i got two messages. You pray I don't preach them both. But... Uh, I'd like to say this to you tonight, that thinking about the soon coming of the Lord, there's no time for attrition amongst the people of God. Now, someone say, Preacher, I don't know what you mean by attrition. Well, I didn't know what it meant either. I heard a fellow say it on, uh, on, the, on the radio when I was listening to a ball game. And I was listening to that football game on the radio. A fellow started talking about football players and the NCAA, and he started talking about attrition. So I looked it up, see what it was. And here's what it's all about. When a student athlete comes and he, he enrolls in a college because he gets a scholarship, whether it's whatever sport it is, football, baseball, basketball, lacrosse, it doesn't matter, tennis. Uh, but if he enrolls and has a scholarship, then the NCAA keeps tabs on that young athlete. And what they want to do is they want to find out how many of those athletes that enroll as a freshman actually finish uh, college and get a degree. And when they don't do that, if they enroll as a freshman and somewhere along the line, maybe they fall out, maybe they give up, maybe they fall out with the coach, or maybe they decide they don't want to play anymore and they drop out of school, they call that the rate of attrition. And, and the NCAA, if they keep track of that and a school has a high enough rate of attrition, then they'll be penalized by the National Association or the Conference of Amateur Athletics, I think is what uh, the NCAA stands for. So they're, what they're doing now, to put it in simple language where I can understand it, they're keeping track how many people quit, how many quit along the way. Now I want to say this to you. If you have ever been saved... You're saved today, and you will be saved forever. Can you say amen to that? The Bible said we are kept by the power of God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. You'll find that in John chapter 10. And in the book of Hebrews, the Bible said that Jesus is the author of eternal salvation. That's not just the quality of it, that's the quantity of it. Jesus never saved anybody for 24 hours. He never saved anybody for two weeks. He never saved anybody just for a span of years. He saves you for eternity. It's called everlasting life. Now I say that for this reason. When I talk about dropping out, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. But I am talking about sometimes when Christians get crossways and they get out of the house of God. And they're not faithful like they used to be. I will not ask you to raise your hand tonight, but if I did ask for a show of hands, 
Probably the hand of every Christian in this auditorium would go up if I were to ask this question. How many of you know somebody who has made a profession of faith and they used to be faithful at the house of God, but now they're out? They don't come anymore. They used to come to Sunday school. They don't come to Sunday school anymore. They used to sing in the choir. They don't sing in the choir anymore. Uh, they used to be faithful. They're not faithful anymore. Probably every one of us in this auditorium knows one or more than one Christian who is like that. Somehow they got out. You say, preacher, are they saved? That's up to God. I don't know whether they're saved or not. I know this. If they ever were saved, they're still saved. But I would say this to you. Sometimes folks get discouraged. They get crossways with God and they get out. I don't want to be that Christian. I don't want to be the one. I was preaching. I had a fella call me this week. This happens more and more to me as I go along. A fella called me. In fact, he called me last week and I forgot to call him back. And he called me again, I think, on Saturday. And he said, he said this, he said his name, said, my name, Brother McBride, my name is Mike Brendel. He said, you may remember my dad, Michael Brendel. You preached for him when I was just a little boy. And when he's talking about a little boy, he's talking about Lawrence's age. He said, when I was just a little boy, and he said, now I'm pastoring a church, and I'm wanting to find out if you could come and preach for me. And you know, I, I thought to myself, I, I get sometimes people say, well, a, a preacher will get up the pulpit, and he'll introduce me, and he'll say, we're glad to have Brother McBride. I used to listen to him when I was in grade school. And, and you know, it bothered me a little bit to have them say that. But then I thought this, I'm glad they're able to say that Brother McBride is still preaching after all these years. I, and that's glory to God. Are you listening now? That's not anything I've accomplished. It's what God has done. But I just want to say to you, let's stay by the stuff. Let's be faithful. Let's not drop out. Now, Paul's dealing with that in this passage. He's dealing with, he's concerned about them. He'll He'll, he'll use this little phrase about being moved. He doesn't want them to be moved. And the word moved, when he uses it in this chapter, it's the picture behind it is a dog, it would be of a dog wagging the tail. And the idea is that tail is never in the same place. It's just going back and forth and back and forth. And Paul said, I don't want you to be moved like that. I don't want you to be back and forth. I don't want you to be up and down. I don't want you to be hot and cold. I don't want you to be in and out. He said, I want you to be steadfast. And I want you to be faithful along the way. Paul is concerned about them. He's apprehensive about them. He'll use that word in verse 3, that no man should be moved. Paul said, I want to give you some things that will help you not to be moved, not to be up and down, in and out, and hot and cold. I want to help you with that. He, was, he had an apprehension about them. He was concerned about the people of God. And he'll not only tell us about his apprehension in verse 3, that they would be moved, but then he's going to tell us about, and I wish... I wish this part was not here, to be honest with you, but it is here, so we're going to preach it. He's going to tell us about some appointments we have. Now watch what he's going to say. In verse number 2, he says, And sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are, watch this word, appointed. Thereunto. Then he'll say in verse 4, For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass. And you know. And then in verse 5, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, 
lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. So Paul says to them, we have some appointments. He uses that word, appointed, in verse number 3. I was looking that word up. I got out my trusted Strong's concordance. Mr. Strong knows Greek a whole lot better than I do. And I thought about an appointment. And here was the picture that he gave, the explanation of it. He said this word appointment, it means to be set or it means to be laid out. It's like, for instance, if you had a calendar. Uh, you remember those calendars? Nobody has them anymore very much because everybody's got an iPad or an iPhone. But we used to have those big calendars. And you had markers, and they're up on the wall, and you'd write on that marker. And you could just glance over at that thing, and, and you'd say, all right, on such and such a week we're doing this, and the next week we're doing this. And what it was, you had it all laid out. It was your pathway all laid out for you. Well, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, my, my Christian brethren there in Thessalonica, I want to tell you what's all laid out for you. I want to tell you in advance. He said, I, as I already told you when I was there, I want to tell you what's coming. I want to tell you what is set before you. I want to tell you about your appointments in this life. What are they? Well, he'll name three of them. He said, first of all, that we have afflictions in our appointment calendar. He said in verse 3 that no man should be moved by these afflictions. The word affliction means to be pressured, to be put under pressure. And it's the idea it could be pressure from without or it could be pressure from within. It could be physical sickness. It could be emotional distress. But listen to me now. Paul says to these young Christians, your Christian life, in your Christian life, you have an appointment with affliction. <laughs> you know, I'd like to miss that appointment, wouldn't you? I'd like for somehow for that appointment to be canceled. I'd like for the Lord to call me on the phone like the doctor says does sometime and say, I'm sorry, we can't see you today. Your appointment has been canceled. I sure would like that affliction appointment to be canceled. But I don't think it's going to be. It's laid out for us. And we're going to suffer affliction. But when we go through that affliction, when we go through that affliction, the Bible tells us that the Holy Ghost is going to work on our heart. And He's going to help us. We're going to grow in the time of affliction. Now, the word affliction is interesting also. Paul said this. He said in Acts 20, Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and affliction, he used this word, abide me. What he's saying is, I didn't, I'm not going to have affliction just a little bit. He said that affliction's going to follow me. It's going to abide with me along the way. And some of us in our Christian life, maybe all of us before we get to heaven, are going to have an affliction that will abide with us in our Christian life. It'll be trouble. It'll be, it'll be maybe a sickness. It'll be some heartache, some emotional distress. But there are afflictions coming. You say, preacher, why would Paul tell them that? Because he didn't want them to be blindsided by their appointment. He wanted them to be prepared. The Bible said, is it James that said, it's either James or Peter said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which just try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. So he said, well, now that I'm saved, there won't be any trouble. No, now that you're saved, there will be some trouble. There'll be affliction. But here's what the psalmist said. He said, it was good for me to be afflicted. Why, it humbled him before the Lord. You know what affliction will do? It'll cause you to cry out to God. 
It'll cause you to humble yourself. It'll cause you to have to put faith in the Lord and to trust the Lord because that affliction will be something you can't straighten out and you can't fix it. And the only one that can help you is God. I was up, I'm staying up, uh, up the road here in a little house and, uh, and there's little signs all over the place. I didn't understand what they were when I first came in. Uh, but it says, the sign says something like this. It says, everyone has a problem that can't be fixed except by God. And that's the truth. That's the truth. I'm just saying to you, there are afflictions on your appointment calendar. Not only there are afflictions, but then Paul said this. Verse 4, he said that we should suffer tribulation. There's tribulation in our calendar. We have an appointment with tribulation. What's the difference between an affliction and a tribulation? Well, affliction is something that can be physical coming from the inside or the outside. But a tribulation, the word tribulation means to crowd. It means to make things narrow. And the idea of tribulation is someone on the outside attacking you most likely for your faith. Tribulation. We go through tribulation and uh, tribulation time in the Christian life. And the Bible tells us, Paul said, or Jesus said this in John. He said, these things have I spoken unto you that you might have peace in the world. You shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You say, well, preacher, we're going through tribulation. We're going through trouble. Now, let's make sure we know what we're talking about. I'm not talking about the tribulation. Because none of us that are saved are going through the tribulation. Because you won't find the church after chapter 4 in the book of Revelation. Because the church, tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. It's not the time of the church's trouble. I'm getting out. I had to spell it. Preacher, I've never asked a man to do this. But one day this man called me and he said, Brother McBride, I'd like to have you come and preach at the church. I said, well, I'll sure pray about it if the Lord opens the door. He said, okay, well, next thing I know, I get in the mail. I get a booklet of his doctrinal statement. I've never asked a preacher for that. I, I don't care what his doctrinal statement is. I'm going to go and preach the Bible, and if it don't line up, he won't ask me back. It'll take care of itself. Amen? And so I didn't ask for it, but I got it in the mail. And I got reading through it, and he said in his doctrinal statement, we do not ascribe to the doctrine of escapism. And I didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, so I called him. I said, what is this doctrine of escapism? He said, it's the rapture. We don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. I said, well, brother, I don't know. You call it what you want to. But when I hear the trumpet sound, I'm escaping out of here. I'm leaving this place. And it's going to be before the great tribulation comes in. That wasn't in the sermon, but I gave it to you. And I won't charge you any extra, okay? So I'm not talking about the tribulation. But I'm talking about tribulation. There will be tribulation. There will be trouble along the way. But let me read you this verse. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. None of those things will separate us from the love of Christ. Paul goes on to say, Yea, in all those things we've been made more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Tribulation and persecution go hand in hand. But I want to remind you what the Bible said over in uh, Exodus chapter number 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 
3 when the when Pharaoh was persecuting the people of Israel. You remember? And in chapter 1, the Bible said the more he persecuted them, the more they grew. And I find that to be true amongst the church, amongst God's people. The more the world persecutes, the more the church gets pruned and purged and refined and strengthened. And the more it sets our heart towards serving God, the more they say stop, the more I want to go. I'm just saying to you, tribulation will help us. We'd like not to have it, but it'd be good for us. There are, there are afflictions in our calendar. There are appointments with tribulation on our calendar. Paul will give us one more. Look in verse five. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. We're not only going to have to deal with affliction and tribulation, we're going to have to deal with temptation. There's going to be temptation. The devil's going to tempt us. He's going to tempt you and he's going to tempt me. You know, I'm 65. I know I look much younger than that. But I'm 65 and I've been preaching uh, for about 40 years. And uh, you would think after preaching 40 years and being a Christian, uh, for I got saved about two years before I started preaching. So you'd think, uh, you'd think after all that time, I wouldn't have any trouble with temptation. But you know what? It's not true. You think the older you get, you wouldn't be tempted with things. But you know what? It's on our calendar, isn't it? We have an appointment. You say, well, preacher, I don't think the devil could bother me with temptation. He tempted the Lord Jesus. Amen. And he'll tempt you and I. But I'm glad Jesus showed us how to overcome temptation. Jesus stayed submitted to the Word of God. When you read about that temptation in Matthew chapter 3, I think it is, or chapter 4, and in the book of Luke, that may be chapter 4, and you read a little bit about it in the book of Mark. John doesn't mention it because John is looking at Jesus through the lens of deity, and deity cannot be tempted. The the divine side of Jesus could not be tempted with sin, but the human side was tempted, and so John doesn't mention it, but Mark and Matthew and Luke, they all mention it, and Jesus, the same thing, the same thing in Matthew and the same thing in Luke. It is written. You know what he did? He submitted himself to the written word of God and he got victory over the devil. Someone will say, well, I heard a charismatic preacher say one time, he said, the Baptist folks say that you can use the word of God and you can, and the devil will flee, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. He said, I tried and it didn't work. You know why it didn't work? Because right before it says resist the devil and he'll flee from you, it says submit yourselves therefore unto God. If you'll submit yourself to God and the word of God, you can use the sword of the spirit. You can win over temptation. But you have to be submitted to God first. There's temptation in our future. There's temptation. There is an appointment with temptation. So we've got afflictions in our future. We have tribulation in our future. We have temptation in our future. You say, oh, preacher doesn't look very bright. Well, let me say this to you. We got something else in our future. Look what he says in verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love, one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Now watch this. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all his saints. You know what he just said? 
He said, you not only have affliction in your future, you not only have tribulation in your future, you not only have temptation in your future, you have a translation in your future. You know what? Jesus is coming back. We've already been told that tonight. He's coming back. And when He comes back and takes us out of here, there will be no more affliction. There will be no more tribulation. There will be no more temptation. I will have a glorified body like unto the body of Christ. And all those things will be passed. And we'll be over. So how am I going to stay faithful through all this? Paul says to me, at least to my mind, something very surprising in this passage. Five times in this passage, in this chapter, Paul will talk about faith. Now that's not surprising to me. Because I need faith in order to stay faithful to God. I must trust the Lord. Faith cometh by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. But what surprises me is what Paul says in verse number 12. Would you look at it again? And the Lord make you to increase and abound in, not faith, but in love. One toward another. And toward all men, even as we do toward you. He says, so I'm, I'm praying that the Lord will make you increase abound and abound in love. And then he said in verse 13, to this end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul did not say, here, here's how you're going to be established, blameless. Uh, how, here's how unblameable in holiness. Here's how you'll be established by your faith. He said, no, by your love. Do you remember G, that Paul said in Corinthians he said, now abideth these three, faith, hope, and charity. And then he said, but the greatest of these is charity. Now, some people like to say, well, you know, preacher, that's a bad translation. It should say love. But no, Paul is dealing with love in action. You ever, you ever hear somebody say, well, I gave to charity. Or they say, I was very charitable. It's love in action. So he's talking about love. And he uses this word charity because he's telling us that love it envieth not, it vaunteth not itself up. It's talking about love in action. I believe that's why he used the word charity. And I believe that's the correct translation. But he said the greatest of these is charity. Now think about this. If we were to put it this way, of, of faith and hope and charity or love, think about it this way. God did not save me because he had faith in me. Because I was not worthy of any faith he had. God did not save me because he had hope in me. Because I was hopeless. So why did he save me? Because he loved me. It wasn't anything in me. is what was in him. Now, think about that. What, Paul's going to use this word toward three times, I think. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. And toward all men, even as we do toward you. Now think about this a moment. God didn't save me because he could put his faith in me. He didn't save me because there was hope for me. He saved me because he loved me. So it was in him and not in me. So you say, well, preacher, we're supposed to love each other. I'm supposed to love my brother and my sister and the Lord. Now, I'm supposed to love them. But, but preacher... I look at them and I don't see much that's lovely. 
How much was there lovely in you when Christ looked at you? Yet he loved you not because of who you were, but because of who he was. And I'm to love you not because of who you are or what you are, but because of who I am and what I am, a child of God. I know something about me. I'm hard to get along with. I'm hard to love. But you know what? You're commanded to love me. Not because there's anything in me worth loving, but because the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost. So love ought to be the natural thing for us. And, and all bickering and fighting and all that ought to be an unnatural thing for the child of God. Our love toward one another. That's the way Paul put it. One writer, a fellow named G. Barlow, wrote this. and I'm, I'm going to give it to you. I want to read it to you. He said, an unblameable holiness is the legitimate and necessary outcome of love. Paul prays for an increase of love in order to the attainment of a higher personal purity. Now think about this. All defects in obedience issue from a defect in love. Our love of God makes us solicitous to know and obey Him and fearful to offend Him. Our love of man makes us careful to preserve His honor and life and possessions and in no way to impair His happiness. The whole of law is love. Think about it. You know what James called love? He called love the royal law. Why would you call love the royal law? Well, first of all, because it was given by a king. The king of the universe said, a new commandment give I unto thee, that you love one another. But it's also the royal law. Not only it was given by a king, but it is it is the royal law because it grants kingship to everyone that will practice it. See, if you live in hatred, you'll be in bondage. But if you learn to love, you'll have freedom. But it's also the royal law because love governs every other law. Now let's just put this down in practical everyday living. If I love you, I won't lie to you. If I love you, I won't steal from you. If I love you, I won't envy you. If I love you, I won't covet what you have. If I love you, I won't gossip about you. You listen now? If I love you, I won't steal from you. If I say to you, I love you, and then I lie about you, I lied when I said I loved you. If I say I love you, and I can't rejoice when God blesses you, I get envious. I don't really love you. You see, all this problem we have with one another, they're love problems. And the problem that we have with Christ is a love problem. When we disobey Him, it's because we don't love Him like we should. And so Paul said, here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that the Lord will help you increase. That means love more. And abound. That means go overboard. In love. Abound in love. Are you abounding in love? You've been gossiping about anybody? You've been coveting what other people have. 
You've been envious. You've been lying about people. You've been saying, I don't know why God would do that for them and not for me. Jealousy and envy. What is that? It's a lack of love. If I love you the way I ought to, when God blesses you, I won't sit back and say, I don't know why God did that for them. They don't deserve it. He should have done that for me. Here's what I'll do. I'll say, hallelujah, glory to God. Isn't he a good God that blesses his people? If my love is right. And so Paul said, I want God to increase your love. And if he increases your love, here's what the end of it will be. The end of it. When Christ comes. He'll be established your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father. I got a little outline. I'm not going to preach it all, but let me just give it to you. Love is the greatest commandment, isn't it? What's the first greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. That's what it says in Matthew. Love is the greatest constraint. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. Love is the greatest covering. Love covereth a multitude of sins. I was thinking about this over in the book of Psalms. David talks about who shall dwell in God's holy hill. And one of the one of the prerequisites of that is he that taketh not up a reproach against his neighbor. Now, I should have put the mic on if I was going to do this, but let's just say let's just say this microphone right here is a reproach. Let's say let's say in your preacher's past there's some reproach against him. He got right with God about it. It's under the blood, but it's there. It's something from his past. I'm not suggesting there is. I'm just making an illustration. And so there it is. Let's say this represents that reproach. So here it is right here. And I come upon this reproach. I didn't know anything about it, but I, I come across it. And so here's what I'll do if I don't love the preacher. Did you know about that? Did you know about that? I bet you didn't know about that. But here's what I'll do if I love the preacher. When I see it. Why? Because love covereth a multitude of sin. I'm not talking about covering up sin that hadn't been repented of. I'm not talking about letting sin go when people don't get right. But I'm talking about when a man has got it right with God, you'll leave it alone. So what is that? That's love. That's love. And the more we love, the more established we become. And the more holy we become. And the more faithful we become. When Hudson Taylor was interviewing some young men who wanted to go to the mission field in China, he asked them why they wanted to go. He said, why do you want to be a missionary? And one young man said, he said, I want to go to the mission field because there are millions in China that are dying without Christ and going to spend an eternity in hell. And another young man said, I want to go because the Bible commands me to go and preach the gospel to every creature. And another one gave this reason. Another one gave that reason. When they got all done, uh, Hudson Taylor just stood there and listened to what they had to say. And when they got all finished, Hudson Taylor looked at them and he said, those are all fine reasons. They're all good reasons. But he said, none of those reasons will keep you on the mission field when you're in trouble and when affliction comes and tribulation and difficulty and temptation. None of those things will keep you there. Only one thing will keep you there. And that's love for Christ. Love is the only thing that will keep you there. And I'm going to say to you tonight, love is the only thing that will keep you from dropping out. To love one another. 
to love the Lord with all your heart and love one another. You say, well, preacher, I'm mad at so-and-so. There's something wrong with your love. Preacher, I'm at odds with so-and-so. Something wrong with your love. You listen now? If my wife and I, we've never had a fight. Let me put it to you this way. Brother Billy Kelly used to say, my wife and I never argue, but folks can hear us discussing things all over town. But you know what? If I love her and we have a disagreement, really doesn't matter who's right or who's wrong. What matters is that we humble ourselves and get it right because we love each other. It's the way it ought to be amongst God's children. I know there, I know there's doctrine. I understand all of those things. But most of our fussing and fighting has nothing to do with doctrine. It has to do with personalities. And if we would love one another and humble ourselves and go and say, now brother, we're brothers. We, we're brethren. Let's get this right. If we'd love one another, you know what happened? We'd get established here. We wouldn't be hot and cold. We wouldn't be up and down. We wouldn't be in and out. We'd be rejoicing in the goodness and love of God and in our love one for another. So here's what I'm wondering tonight. I'm wondering if you have a love problem. I'm wondering if there's somebody in the, in the service or another brother or another sister in Christ and you're at odds with them. You say, I'll tell you why I'm at odds with them. No, I'll tell you why you're at odds with them. You have a love problem. You don't love like you should. And however you say, well, preacher, you don't know the ins and outs. You don't know the ups and downs. You don't know all the intricacies of it. No, I don't. But I know what the Bible said. Love one another. And our problems are love problems. And if we'd learn to love God the way we ought to, he'd help us to learn to love others. The way we ought to. Maybe we could pray for ourselves the way Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. He said, Lord, he said, here's why I'm praying for you. He said, the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. Maybe we could pray for ourselves like that. Lord, make me to increase and abound in love one toward another. You know what love will do? It'll keep you from falling out. It'll keep you from quitting. It'll keep you from leaving. That's what love will do. I want you to bow your heads a moment. Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Nobody's looking. I remember a good friend of mine wrote a song. First verse of the song talks about a man in a trench in the middle of a battle. He's getting ready to run. But he looks at his comrades And he says this, I can't run, I'm too in love to leave. And then the second verse talks about a woman whose husband's not right. She's had all she can stand. She gets ready to go. She thinks about him and about the children. And she unpacks her bags and said, I'm too in love to leave. And the third verse talks about Jesus, who lived this in this world. A perfect life in the midst of sin. And no doubt perhaps thought, I just, I'll just go home and leave this crowd. But he was too in love to leave. I want to be too in love to leave the people of God. Tonight maybe the Lord dealt with your heart. I know.
This is a continuation really of last night. That's the way Paul did it in this book. And he put this emphasis on love. If God spoke to your heart about a problem with love, won't you do something about it tonight at an altar? Let me say this before I go. There may be somebody here and you've never been saved. You don't know if you died, you go to heaven. I'll remind you what the Bible said, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you. That's why he died for you, so that you could be saved. And if you're not saved, he wants to save you. He loved you enough to go to Calvary. If you'll come, we'll get somebody to take the Bible. They can show you in the Bible how to get it settled with God. Won't you come do something about that tonight? If you're not saved, you come. We'll help you. Father, help us tonight. Help us with our love. Lord, help us to love even when we're unloved. That's what God did with us. That's what you did with us. Help us to love our neighbors ourselves. Help us to love one toward another. Help us to love like you love as best we can. Make make love the law of our lives tonight. Help us, Lord. We need you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand a moment.